Let me begin being thankful for the word of God that is preached today. Father, we do thank you because we are your people. And being your people, we have the right to come to your sanctuary with like-minded believers where we can take solace in knowing that you have saved us and you continue to do the work in us. We pray by the reading of your word and by the preaching of the text, your truth might be known. And that upon hearing, people may grow, learn, and be nourished to be better Christians, better people at displaying the love of God all around us, so that in the end, Lord, you may be perfectly magnified. This we pray in your name. Amen. Our text today is found in Jeremiah chapter 17. We'll be reading the first 14 verses. Listen as I read Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1 through 14. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved upon the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altar. As they remember their children, so they remember their altar and their asherim by green trees on the high hills. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty. Your high places for sin throughout your border, and you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I gave you. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which burns forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turn away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blesses the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield its fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his way, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that hatch eggs which it has not laid So is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him, and in the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsaken you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Well, as you've heard earlier, our pastor is away, 
He's out of state in Maine officiating a wedding. And so in his place, I have the honor of preaching and bringing you the message today. And I'm thankful for this because for some time, as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah and even uh, Isaiah before that, there's been so much that I've wanted to say. And John and David himself can attest to that. But because of our limited time during the exhortation, we've been very limited But today I get to share much more, and so I pray that you might be blessed by what I share. Now, when we look at our text, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, I'm sure it'll come to no surprise that you know that I affirm this as well as the leaders affirm this, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. In fact, I'm sure that most of you also affirm it because this is what the scriptures confirm. And of course, there, if you pick up the local paper, if you watch the local news, there's no shortages of this on full display. Some of the most egregious acts have been committed just in the past few weeks that supports this truth. There are no shortages of reports of theft, of rapes, Murders, lies, scandals, as well as new inventive ways of deceit. When these things happen, what is on display is the natural disposition of every single man, woman, and child on earth. In recent months and days, there's been an explosion in violence from multiple shootings to the assault on Asian Americans, the brutal killing of George Floyd. And ever since the lockdowns have slowly been lifted, more and more violent crimes are being occurred day by day. If you need more evidence that the heart of man is desperately wicked, you can even find this among professing, professing believers because they also commit equally brutal act. I want you to consider this. Consider the events surrounding the First Baptist Church of Crabapple in Milton, Georgia. The First Baptist Church of Crabapple is a church of believers similar to us. In fact, we share basically the same doctrinal convictions, such as when it comes to the leaders in the church an elder-led church. They're also doctrinally orthodox. They have expository preaching. They believe in the believer's baptism. There's church membership and also the practice of church discipline. And these are but just a few of the commonalities that we share. We are like-minded believers in church. And recently, as on any other typical Monday, uh, Sunday morning, the pastor of the church preached a full expository, expository sermon from Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, about the warfare to which Christians are called, fleeing from all sorts of evil. He also went on to Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 10, where he talked about fleeing from sexual immorality. He dealt with the reality of the Bible's honesty about the sin of lust and sexual temptation. What he preached was entirely within the scope of the passage. It's entirely in, keep, entirely in keeping with the Christian tradition. It's entirely faithful to the scripture and doesn't include any kind of teaching or any kind of application that in any way could be understood as justifying anything ungodly 
and certainly anything violent, which is what made what happened next so egregious. A member of the congregation, 21-year-old Robert Long, after hearing the message, would go out into the local community. He went out and murdered eight people in two different business locations in Atlanta, Georgia. You might remember this if you haven't lost track based on the amount of mass shootings we had since then as the Atlanta spa shootings. The situation actually could have been a whole lot worse. But thank God Robert Long was apprehended on his way to Florida in an attempt to wreak havoc on other spa businesses. Robert Long would later fully admit to carrying out this murderous rampage, and he had given the reason for this that it was linked to his sexual struggle and his sexual temptation. His motive was carried out as an attempt to remove a source of temptation. Think about that. In the wake of this heartbreaking event, there are a lot of questions, questions from the world which has, which has its own set of answers and questions from the body of believers that we only will find guidance in the scripture. Today, I want to address just the body of believers as we consider some biblical principles for Christians to consider about the struggle with sin. Because if we don't consider the reality that Christians, not just some Christians, but all Christians deal with sin and struggle, it can lead to a false understanding, which can in, lead, which it can in turn lead to tragic, tragic results. Results when those false understandings are put into action, just as in the case of Robert Long. After the events of the multiple murders committed by Robert Long, the First Baptist Church of Crabapple held a members' meeting where the action of Robert Long were denounced as unchristian, and he was stripped of his church membership. His actions prove he was not a Christian, and by stripping him of his church membership, the body of believers in that local congregation were declaring that he is to be no longer considered a regenerate Christian. It's not to be understood that he was ever one and that he lost it based on the actions he committed, but that he had demonstrated through his evil act that he was never a believer in the beginning. He was a false convert. And obviously in keeping with the faithful teaching of scripture, this was the correct thing to do. And had something like this occurred in this local body of believers, certainly this evil act would have been dealt in the same way. We would have stripped you of your membership and we would have denounced you as a false convert. The Apostle Paul says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. When Robert Long left the service and committed these wicked acts, he was shown not to be of us. And that was very clear. Let's look at our text. The outline of our passage found in Jeremiah chapter 17, 
can be divided into five sections addressing the heart. Verses 1 through 4 addresses the hardened heart. In the ancient days, if you needed to inscribe writing in stone, you needed a tool that was much stronger than the stone itself. In this case, the stone tablets to be written on are the hearts of the people of Judah. And only an iron diamond tip pen can write on them. And what is written on them, on their hearts, are the records of their sin of idolatry. In verses 5 through 8, we see what's addressed here is the trusting heart. It depicts the difference between those who do and those who don't trust in God. One is cursed because he trusts in everything else but God. The other experiences the blessing of God because he firmly has set his heart to trust God for everything. And in verses 9 through 11, addresses the tested heart. Perhaps the people of Judah thought that God is like any other man or idol, lacking the ability to know the innermost secret thoughts and plans of a person, and instead relies on outward appearance. But no, not God. He, only need, he, he not only knows, but he searches the entirety and tests the entirety of the heart. And based on these results, he rewards according to the deeds of good and evil. The tested hearts of the people of Judah have been found to be desperately sick. In verses 12 through 13, we see that the Lord is our hope. The only hope man has is to place his faith and trust in the Lord. God is our sanctuary and our place of rest and hope whom without we are doomed to despair. And then in verse 14, we see what's addressed is the Lord, our healer and salvation. This is in recognition and declaration that only God can heal and save. It's a sovereign action only God can perform. Now, as we consider, begin to consider the struggle with sin, let's look at a key verse. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Biblically speaking, the heart consists of the will, emotion, and intellect. And it is the human will, emotion, and intellect which governs our actions. But in our fallen state, represented as the heart, all of these faculties are broken. They're defective. And they suffer from an incurable Condition. It is captive. It's held prisoner by sin. And without God's intervention, there is no hope. So today, biblically speaking, it's correct to say that the human mind is the most wicked thing on the earth. And there's no medical or therapeutic help for it. Only the sovereign work of God can heal it and cure it. While Jeremiah 17.9 is an often familiar passage to quote about the natural disposition of the heart of man, it's important that we properly understand this text so that we don't live in despair thinking that there is no hope. Hope that only the believer can experience. What do I mean by this? Well, Jeremiah 17.9 ends with the question, who can understand it? 
This is a rhetorical question expecting a negative answer. However, the strongly negative assessment of the human heart is not to describe the believer's heart under the new covenant in which God promises to write his law on his people's heart, not the sins of his people as he did the people of Judah. Consider Ezekiel 36, 26. Listen to this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. How about Hebrews 10.22? Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. With the new covenant that we experience comes a new heart that has been granted to all believers. And the properties of this new heart makes it capable to follow and observe the law of God. It also has the property of being sincere and clean in conscience. This cleaning is a, it's spiritual and can only be done by the spirit of God. It comes with our justification and it continues throughout the remaining days of our lives as our sanctification progresses more and more every single day. And though we struggle with sin, it will never result or should never result in unrestrained and unrepented wicked acts that contradicts our faith as defined in the scriptures to those given the new heart and a new spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, the scripture and many more, the, these scriptures here and many more point to the obvious distinction between slaves of sin versus slaves of righteousness. Ironically, when freed from sin, we actually continue to be slaves, but this time not to sin, but to righteousness. If slaves of sin are in bondage and can do nothing spiritually pleasing to God because they lack faith, being dead in their sins, then how much more should we who are dead to sin, but alive in Christ and slaves to righteousness do what is pleasing to God? This is the ability that we now have and we're supposed to put into regular practice every day as the spirit of God empowers us. Now, it's easy to see what's happening in this sinful world as sin runs rampant and it leaves us to think there is no hope. But you know what? There should be a greater amount of hope because we, the people of God, also inhabit the earth. And we're about doing the righteous works of our father so that he can be glorified. The defining characteristics of true believers never allow for acts and treachery against our fellow human beings. 
especially in an attempt to rid ourselves of the temptations of sin, as Robert Long tried. Anyone who does this is to be compared, as Jesus did, to a bad tree producing bad fruit that is the product of an evil heart. So, which are you? Have you assessed yourself to see if you're a good tree or a bad tree? Consider a few weeks ago, the pastor's message we were talking about, or he read the scripture which says, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Or Luke 6.45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fill his heart. See, my point in referring to these texts is to show you that if you're a true believer in Christ, then you no longer have the heart of the unregenerate man as described in Jeremiah 17, 9. Instead, you've got a heart of the regenerate man as described by Ezekiel under the new covenant instituted by our Savior. This believer is planted like a tree, a good tree next to a river, a good clean river that provides good nourishment so that the tree, the good tree, will provide good fruit in due season. That's supposed to be us. Whether under good conditions or bad conditions, we will produce. Remember Jesus when he was walking with his disciples he saw a fig tree which was mature that shouldn't produce fruits. It didn't. It failed to produce. Jesus cursed it, and immediately upon cursing it, it withered and died. What a vivid picture of what awaits those who don't produce fruit. Good fruit. Although committing acts such as Those committed by Robert Long is completely inconsistent with the Christian witness. It does not mean that we're free from the struggles of sin in our lives. So that we don't burden ourselves or bring harm to others as we attempt to deal with our struggle with sin. We need to develop a proper perspective when it comes to sin and our continued struggle with it in our lives. When we ascertain a proper understanding, only then can we make proper application to our lives. Robert Long had a wrong view of sin, and that led to an unbiblical view and application and actions. And this can and will happen again, even if you belong to a good biblical church. That's why we're always about searching our hearts with the guidance of Scripture and the Spirit of God as we perform a careful diagnostic of our hearts by the reading of scripture so that we don't fall into the same unbiblical view. Let's take a look as time permits us to understand how we are to deal with sin in our lives after being committed to Christ. Let's begin by looking at some basic principles Christians are to consider about the struggles of sin. And the basis of this comes from our text today. Now, the following is by no means an exhaustive uh, exhaustive list, but I do believe that the following eight points are a great start. The very first principles that we're to consider about the struggle of sin, number one, is to be honest. 
We're to be honest about the struggle with sin. Verse 9 of our, st- of our text state, as a matter of fact, that the heart is deceitful and sick. Why lie about it? But not only that, God has insight to our heart. He knows and he understands all. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 18, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It might seem to be a contradiction, but this is, entire, this is entirely a reality for the believer. John is saying that the truth is in us only when we stop lying about ourselves and just confess we are sinners. Be honest about it. Speaking the truth by admitting guilt is the first step to repentance and forgiveness and living a life of truth. This is the true disposition disposition of every believer. We willingly admit we sin, and it's the reason why we sought and now have God's forgiveness. Let me remind you that the death of Christ paid for all our sins, the past, the present, and the future. Consider John, 1 John 1, 9, the next verse. If we can... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you notice the plurality of sins? The believer knows he's a sinner who daily, daily needs the grace of God. And thus, when he sinned, he is faith. God is faithful to forgive him and cleanse him. It's a process that makes us grow closer and fonder and more dependent on God every single day. If we are believers in Christ, then we are joined to him and those joined to him can't be joined to sin. We have the spirit of God in us, therefore we have help. It's the very help that Jesus promised that he would send us to guide us in all truth. His very own spirit. We can also find help in the body of Christ. These are his people joined together in the spirit of truth. So let's be honest. We all struggle with sin. To say the opposite is to declare premature victory. But because of God's precious grace supplied at all time, we already have a promise that he will preserve us and we are not to despair. Continuing with the apostles John writing, he says in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Is that not wonderful? When I was growing up, when I was growing up, I thought that if I should ever need legal representation, you know who would I want on my side? Perry Mason. Man never lost a case. As a believer, I now know that Perry Mason just can't do the job. I need more than him, but I've got something better than him now. I've got Jesus Christ, the Savior. Amen? Amen. Point number two. Don't hide behind therapeutic or euphemistic labels. One of the things that come up in the life of Robert Long is the fact that 
The pattern of sin in his life is described as an addiction. Long has described his addiction as a sexual addiction. But let's be clear. This word is not in the Bible. While addictions are real, and many experience what are called and could be adequately and and accurately called addictions, when we apply too readily to every act and pattern of sin, as the world does, it becomes part of the therapeutic spectrum that suggests there's some form of treatment available to rescue the addict. Now, I'm the furthest thing from a medical doctor or an expert in any kind, and I don't pretend to be so, but I do know this. The reality is that therapeutics are not the rescue when it comes to sin. Only Christ is. Look at verse 14 in our text. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. There's no pill that we can take. The only treatment, the only cure is Jesus Christ. Cry out, heal me, O Lord, and he will heal you. As far as the scriptures are concerned, sin is a disease that leads ultimately to death. And I've yet to hear anybody proclaim that they've found the cure to death. Only God has that ability. Only Christ offers the cure to death. While addictions are real, here's the thing. They are just simply symptoms of the real problem, sin. Point number three. Another point that we should consider about the struggle with sin is recognizing the enemy. This is really, really important. I see believers failing to consider this too often. Your enemy is never, ever another human being, particularly in your struggles with your own sin. There are enemies that are listed in the Bible. Perhaps we can put them under two categories, external enemies or internal enemies from within. The external enemies are those, as we saw in Luke 6, but a few weeks ago. These are enemies only because we love Christ. It's the source of our persecution for being righteous believers. But as we read, what are we told to do? We're told to love them, to do good to them, and to pray for them. Then, of course, there's Satan, the accuser who's looking to sift us and to find any little morsel he can use against us. He'll try to sow doubt, confusion, dissension, temptation, and lies. This is the reason for the Apostle Paul's instruction in Ephesians 6 that we should put on the full armor of God, which is the word and the truth of God. But even he is not the single most dangerous enemy. There's somebody more insidious And if we fail to recognize this, it can lead to real, real harm. You woke up with this enemy today. You saw this enemy in the the mirror. You had breakfast with this enemy. Perhaps you're sitting with this enemy right now. No, this is not your kids or your spouse. The enemy is yourself. First notice 
that as we've been going through Jeremiah and Isaiah, even before that, the people have been constantly warned and given chances to repent of their wickedness. Their wickedness resulted in the mistreatment of others by stealing, by abuse, to the most evil act of rejecting and exchanging God to serve dumb idols. Paul recognizes this. In fact, nowhere do you find the mention of Satan amongst the problem that the people of Jeremiah is having. He's not the principal enemy. Instead, it's the people themselves. God's own people don't need help to sin. They do it all on on their own, right? They own it. We own it. Paul recognizes this in the seventh chapter of Roman, as he says about the inner struggle that he and all believers have with sin. Now, Paul's been converted. He's been given a new heart and new spirit as we have. God is at work in him, but there still is sin that remains. We're in these mortal bodies of our flesh and is the reason why we still wage war. Listen to Romans chapter 7, verse 17 through 20. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is the very real battle that continues as part of our sanctification. A battle that we wage by denying the flesh so that the spirit may grow stronger and stronger. To not recognize this will lead us to misrepresent, misidentify the enemy, or at worst, even consider the most mis, uh, not consider the most dangerous enemy is ourselves. The claim that Satan made me do it is not a valid biblical claim. Satan can only tempt, but he can't make you do. The reality is that the greatest of my enemy is my own heart. That's why we constantly need to be what renewed. By the reading of God's word and join together with like minded believers and pray that God would keep us until the day of his second coming. So let me repeat again. Your enemy is never another human being in your own struggles with sin. Do what the scripture tells us to do. If someone is causing you to sin, stop hanging out with them. Right. If something is causing you to sin separate yourself from it. We can't keep reducing other people to agents of our sin. It's our own personal responsibility, ours alone. Point number four, trust in Christ. In verse seven of our text, we see that Jeremiah writes, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Trust in Christ alone. If you're truly a believer, you will have the very real assurance from God that in Christ, he will sustain you to the end. God promises to preserve you by his grace. 
As he told the Apostle Paul upon his constant request to rid him of a thorn in the flesh, God simply said, my grace is sufficient. There's a purpose in our struggle with sin. God allows it to perfect us, and this will continue to the day that we die. But he also promises this, when we die, there is no more struggle to be had. Praise God. So, trust in Christ. To not trust in him is to deny his power and assurance and instead give in to despair. Our struggle is never too much for God to provide what we need. In him, we are eternally secured. Point five. Don't blame others for your sins. Even as I said earlier, we need to recognize our true enemy. I need to expand this just a little bit more. One of the twisted thinking Robert's Long's mind, in Robert's long mind is that he needed to remove temptation by turning murderous. He did what we are called specifically not to do in Scripture. Robert Long, had Robert Long been a true believer, he would have adhered to what verse 5 affirms about sin. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, what did we read? Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. This is something that's been personalized. In verse 10, God is to give every man according to his way, according to the fruits of his deeds. We do not blame others for our sins. And we certainly don't become their judge, their jury, and their executioner. Regardless of who that might be or what pattern of sinful trade or production or any other trade that makes engaging in sinful practice uh, possible. Now, what we can do instead in our form of government is opposed by elections, sponsoring laws, or with other means of legislation to protect ourselves, but we never turn murderous. Jesus never said, if Joe's hand and eyes causes you to sin, cut them off and pluck them out. No, but instead of Matthew 18, he said, if your hand, if your foot causes you to stumble, you cut it off and throw it away. If your eyes causes you to stumble, then you throw it away. This speaks directly to our personal responsibility when it comes to dealing with our personal struggles. So above all else, do not harm anyone. Don't even harm yourselves in your struggle with sin. That goes against our biblical worldview. Here's the sixth point. Go to the church for help, your church. God provides help through the fellowship of believers, the church. If you're having problems, find a good church and become a member. It's the way God intended us to grow and to mature and to have accountability. In verse 12 of our text, we read, A glorious throne is set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Going into the sanctuary where God reside is where the people of God congregate and find their refuge. Psalm 73 verse 28 says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In the church congregation, you can go to your elders. This is the purpose of our role in the church. Your elders are your spiritual shepherds appointed by the Holy Spirit as men to keep watch over your souls. Our job is to help, is to protect, and to keep watch over you. Watch over the flock so that no one may stray. And we do that through sound teaching, exhortation, and discipline. Or go to a fellow mature believer. Perhaps there's someone in the body that you know who's demonstrated godly wisdom. They can help you with a particular problem. God has provided us all through the church as a means of grace to support one another. Especially when we put our gifts to work as acts of Christian love within the fellowship of believers. Point seven. Let's recognize the complexity of sin. Recognizes the com- recognize the complexity of sin. Think about how sin worked and guided the actions of Robert Long. How sin works in our culture, its structure, and the business of sin in our society. And don't begin to fool yourselves into the delusion that you can go into the business of sin without being drawn and immersed into it yourselves. This is what we're reading all about as we travel through the pages of Jeremiah. The people who are consistently giving themselves over to the business of sin. They've made it a commodity and now judgment is upon them. It's also why we must be diligent in extracting ourselves from all those possibilities that exist. But we can only do this when we are scripturally informed, when we heed the word and the laws of God. And we can because we have the spirit of God that empowers us. And saving us, God has separated us to himself. We're no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of Christ and his righteousness. Lastly, point number eight. In our consideration about the struggles with sin, we are never to give up hope. To understand Christianity is to understand why we never give up hope. Christianity is hope. Hope in Christ that has saved us from our sins by his effectual work on the cross. It's the last part of repentance that carries the believer throughout the rest of his life. After admitting our guilt, asking for forgiveness, then we put our full faith and trust in God. Guess what? That's hope. To give up hope is to deny God and slander his name. Our hope is that with the second coming of our Savior, we'll be transformed into his likeness and finally experience with our new hearts in mind, joined to our new bodies, perfection for the rest of eternity. Let's remember Jesus did accomplish his mission. He came to seek and save the lost, and he did. We can agree and believe 
And this is affirmed by Jeremiah's prayer at the end in verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Amen. Father, we are so thankful for your word of truth. We are so thankful that indeed, upon calling out after realizing how sinful we are, desperately wicked, that you have saved us. And by saving us, you have secured us for all eternity. May this truth be explained to the world so that upon hearing the good news that no one has to suffer, no one has to die in their sin, but all can be set free to enjoy a life of righteousness and dwelling with our God forever, that this will excite them, allowing you to work in them, turning their hearts from stone to flesh so that they might become worshipers of yours. This is what we simply pray for, Lord, that you would be glorified. And I pray today you were glorified by the preaching of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. rise as we sing my faith my faith has found a resting place my faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed I trust the everlasting one his wound for me shall plead. I need no argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saved is in my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him who'll never cast me out. My heart is loving, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My great physician heals the sick, the loss he came to save. For me his precious blood he shed, for me his life he gave. I 
need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And now I pray that you go in the peace of God, being the light to the world, the salt to the earth, so that upon hearing the good name of our Father, others may join in the family and share the cherishing love that God has provided for all his people. Go now in the peace of God. Amen.